Lord, we come before you uh, thankful for who you are, thankful for what you have done for your church. Uh, We thank you for what you've been teaching us in your letters to your churches. Pray that you would be with us here at Rock Valley Bible Church, that you would help us to see your message to the churches and how that applies to your church today here in Rockford. Uh, We are a church, Lord, that we are hungry and needy, and we know that it's only you that can fill and satisfy and sustain us. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, that you would use that to edify your church, to fill us, to keep us alive and vibrant. We pray that everything that's said here and everything that we do would always be for your honor and your glory. Amen. Well, again, like I said, we are in Revelation chapter 3, and we've been working our way through the seven churches in Revelation. And I think it's important for us uh, to do a quick review and to do a little background uh, to kind of set the stage for where we're at in the fifth church. I remember that these letters were all penned by John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Uh, They were all his words that he wrote down, but they were inspired in a vision where he saw Jesus. So it's God's words. We see some themes that hold true through these seven letters. We see the omniscience of God. We see that each letter has a similar structure. It starts with a phrase, I know your works. I know your deeds. I think it really points to the fact that Jesus cares about his local church. So I think we have to start with that thought, that it matters that Rock Valley Bible Church meets together on Sunday mornings. And that's a big theme that comes through these seven churches. He knows these churches intimately. He starts with a commendation. I know your works and then praises the church for something they do. And then in most cases follows it up with some areas of correction. He knows what the church needs. He knows where the church falls short. Another theme that holds through the churches is um, that these are really similar churches. These churches are all smattered across the western portion of modern-day Turkey. And they were all likely, even though we don't know much about them, they were all likely founded on the similar premise when Paul was in Ephesus. And in Acts 19, it says that the gospel spread to Asia Minor. These churches likely are all offshoots or daughter churches from that church that was in Ephesus. But keep in mind that even though these are seven specific churches that all came offshoots from this church in Ephesus, that this message is something that is a message that is applicable to the modern church as well. Even though there are seven specific churches, these seven types of churches have certainly existed in every time period since and will until the Lord returns. So there's much that we can get from these letters, even though we weren't the original intended audience. So as we've been challenged the last few weeks to say, where's Rock Valley Bible Church? Which church are we? What do we have to learn from these letters to the churches? Well, I'm happy to say that I'm not preaching 
this message to the intended audience like Rock Valley Bible Church. We are not the dead church, thankfully. But there's a lot that we can learn from the message to the dead church. This church, in a matter of 20 to 30 years, went from an alive and vibrant church built off of a church where the Holy Spirit was doing multiple signs and wonders, and now 20 to 30 years later, they're called dead. So lest we think it's not applicable to us, Rock Valley Bible Church, who is alive and vibrant, in a matter of 20 to 30 years, if we follow the path that Sardis went on, we could be dead if it weren't for the grace of God. Well, again, Revelation chapter 3, if you're there, page 1029, I'm going to read starting at verse 1 through verse 6. This is to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, just as I got done saying, the church in Sardis was likely an alive and vibrant church when they began. And now, just 20 years later, we see the beginning of the message where our omniscient God says, I know your works. Imagine this being written to the church. This letter comes, and it's likely being read in a public setting to the church. And he says, this is a letter that came to them inspired by Christ. And it says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. Probably got the church thinking, oh, we're pretty good. We're doing nice. But then you're dead. But you're dead. So an important question for us to ask is, how does that happen? How does that happen in 20 to 30 years? Well, I was reading an article uh, just a few weeks ago about a particular star This star is called Eta Carina. This particular star has been of importance or interest to astronomers over the last 200 years, and that's because this star has been fluctuating in its intensity of its light. And overall, over the last 200 years, it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And astronomers get kind of geeked out about this thing because they think that's what happens when stars are going to explode into this massive supernova or turn into this giant black hole, whatever stars do when they die. But what's really interesting about this is this star is about 7,500 light years away. And if you don't know what a light year is, it's the distance traveled in a year if you're moving at the speed of light or... 186,000 miles per, anybody know? Second. So if you traveled 7,500 years, maintaining a speed of 186,000 miles per second, you would reach this star. 
So the question is, when will the star burn out? Well, the interesting part is we may not know until 7,500 years after it's happened because that's how long it takes the light to get to our eyes. This star may have burned out before the time of Christ. But yet to us, it's still bright. It still appears alive. It still appears vibrant. But the star itself may be dead and decayed. That's kind of like the church in Sardis. They still appear alive. There's a remnant that's left. There is light and life that appears based off of strong, solid foundation and roots. But the church at its core is dead. It's kind of like what Jesus says in John chapter 15 where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Sardis was a church that wasn't producing spiritual fruit. They hadn't remained grafted into the vine. They were broken off. The leaves maybe hadn't withered yet, but they're a dead church. This is kind of like a church full of Pharisees that have rich spiritual background. They follow the law. They're doing things. They're helping the poor. They're feeding the hungry. But yet, their spiritual lives are dead. They've neglected the fact that their only worth and value is in the redemptive work that Jesus did in the cross. They are spiritually dead. And this happened in a time period of just 20 to 30 years. So as we've looked at these letters the last few weeks, we see that Jesus starts each letter with an introduction. He introduces himself to the church. So we're at my first point, the introduction to the dead church. So it's really interesting to look at how Jesus introduces himself in the letter. It keys us in a lot of times to the point of the letter or the problem with the church. So how would you think that Jesus would introduce himself to the dead church? Maybe it's somebody who's holding a sword in judgment coming at the dead church, like he did to the church in Pergamum. Or maybe as somebody with eyes like fire or shoes of burnished bronze, strength and power like he did to the church in Thyatira. Or maybe as he did in chapter 1, he describes himself with a voice like many roaring waters. But he doesn't. If you look in the beginning of verse 1, He describes himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So what's the seven spirits of God? Many times John uses this cryptic language in Revelation, and he clearly explains what it is. The seven spirits of God are mentioned several times in the first few chapters, but he doesn't specifically explain what it is. Well, we know the Spirit of God is, likely the Holy Spirit he's talking about, but seven Holy Spirits? Hmm. What about the number seven? He uses the number seven several times in the book of Revelation. And it's generally referring to fullness or completeness or the totality of something when he's using the number seven. So this is likely meaning he's talking about he's the one who possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The totality, all that the Holy Spirit embodies. This thought is supported in Isaiah chapter 11. I'll read the first two verses quickly. Isaiah is prophesying 
the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit being upon him. It's Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I think it's interesting if you number the ways that Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit here, and you read it, you see that he says, one, the Spirit of the Lord, two, the Spirit of wisdom, three, an understanding, four, the Spirit of counsel, five, in might, six, the Spirit of knowledge, seven, the fear of the Lord. He's talking here about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he describes it seven different ways when he talks about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Well, and then John talks about the next way, or I'm sorry, the next way Jesus describes himself is the one who has the seven stars. This is a little easier. If we look across the page in chapter 1, the end of verse 20, he says, the seven stars are the angels to the churches. Very easy. If we think back to the message Pastor Steve did introducing the churches in Revelation, he went to great message or great length to talk about who's the angel to the church. And he said it may be more clearly translated if we talk about the messenger, the one who brings the message to the church. So we see here that Christ is addressing the dead church, and he's introducing himself before he even gets into the message as you, the dead church, who doesn't have true pastors and ministers, who's not being preached the word of God who isn't being fueled by the Holy Spirit, come to me, who has both. So before we dig into what the message is to the dead church in Sardis, what do we know about Sardis as a city? The answer is outside of this chapter, not a whole lot. It's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Um, it is, it, history says that it was about 60 miles inland from Ephesus, uh, it was a city that was thought to be very rich, had a, ri- a river coming through it that was rich in gold and silver. It was likely one of the first places where gold and silver were minted. Uh, geographically, Sardis, the upper part of the city, was built on a big, large granite pier with steep cliffs on the side. It was a military fortress. It was difficult for them to be taken over by somebody else. But tradition says that Sardis was so confident in their position on this granite pier that a neighboring city had laid siege to them and Sardis didn't keep anybody watch. Everybody went to sleep. And a young child was able to scale the mountains on the granite pier, throw a rope down to the soldiers. They were able to climb and you can imagine what happened. They were killed. They let their guard down and they were killed. I think it's interesting that this is likely the same thing that happened to the church in Sardis. They let their guard down and they're killed. So if we look at the message that Jesus has to the dead church in Sardis, we come to our second point, which is the problem with the dead church. Jesus lays out the problem with the dead church. Like the prior four churches we saw in each letter, he opens, he says, I know your works. But there's no commendation for this church in Sardis. He comes right out and says, you're dead. Then he says in the second part of verse 2, For I have not found your works complete or acceptable in the sight of my God. How does Sardis become dead? 
Well, there's no specific mention, as he does in other letters, of specific sins or specific problems that the church is encountering. But yet there must have been. Because we see almost every time in the Bible where death is talked about, there is a reciprocal mention of sin. We see, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Then when lust is conceived, it gets birth to sin, and sin is accomplished, and it brings forth death, James 1.15. There just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. And the list goes on. Sardis was a dead church because of sin. The church is called to be a place that's pure, that's set apart, that doesn't tolerate sin. But the church in Sardis did, and sin killed even the most alive church. It's kind of like what we see in 1 Samuel. We see Eli, a faithful priest, but he has two wicked sons. His two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The, the, uh, chapter 2, verse 17 says this about Eli's son. It says, The sins of the young men was great in the eyes of the Lord. We see several times in these first chapters where Eli was correcting his sons, trying to tell them to turn from their sins, and they didn't heed his warnings. We even see that they were found to be sleeping with the women at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Sin was being tolerated in Israel. And what happened to them? They went to war against the Philistines. 30,000 were killed because of this sin being tolerated. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken. The visible presence of God was taken. That's what happens. That's what happened in the church in Sardis. Sin was tolerated. And what came? Death. So if we look at verse 4, even though the church as the whole is dead... They've tolerated sin and they're dead. But we see that there's still a hope. There's a remnant. It says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. This clearly points to the fact that even in dead churches, even in the most spiritually dead churches, there can be a remnant. There are some. This points to the fact that there are true Christians that are in Sardis. So that's the problem with the dead church. The dead church is dead because of sin, because they tolerated sin. So the next point, what does Jesus have to say to the dead church, the church of the mostly unregenerate? We get to point three, which is the commands to the dead church. If we look back in verse 2, the commands to the dead church, he says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Hope you see five key commands here. He starts by saying, Wake up. Then he says, Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you have heard. Keep it and repent. Now, how would the message, wake up, come to the dead church? I think this is kind of fitting. Fifteen or so minutes into my message. It wouldn't say, wake up. The message is, wake up! Wake up! He is clearly saying, 
That's your problem. You're dead. Wake up. Assess your condition. Look around. Do you not see where you have drifted? Wake up. That's the message to the dead church. What do we see most times when there's a problem? What's the first step to going down the road to fixing the problem? It's acknowledging that there is a problem, identifying the problem. We see 12-step processes to fixing problems. What's the first step? Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for the hi, Brian. That's what we see as the first step. This wake-up command, he's calling this church to say, Hi, we're the church in Sardis. We have a problem We are spiritually dead. We are sick with sin. We cannot fix this. It's acknowledging the problem and acknowledging that they can't fix it. The only one is this person who's writing the letter who identifies himself as having the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He identifies himself as the one who has true messengers, true pastors. That's the only person that can do that. That's the first step. That's the first command to the dead church. And we see what follows that is a very strict warning. He says in verse 3, if you will not wake up, if you don't heed this warning, if you don't assess your condition and see what's going on, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Christ is saying to them, listen to me when I say wake up. If you don't, I will come against you like a thief. Now just in case you don't know what a thief is, it's an unwanted guest. But we don't think about a thief as being Santa Claus that's coming in to bring presents. Or the tooth fairy that hides money under your pillow. Right? We think of a thief as somebody that comes with the intent to do harm. And even more so, when the Bible talks about the thief coming in relation to Christ coming at his second coming, he's talking about judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Here he says the thief is going to bring destruction. Those who walk in the light, those who are alive, they welcome the second coming. They say, come Lord Jesus. But to the dead, the command is, wake up. So command one is, wake up. And if you won't, he's coming like a thief in judgment. Command number two. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is likely him acknowledging that there's a few. There are a few in Sardis that have not soiled their garments. They have held true to Christ. They are regenerate Christians. And he's calling on them, recover what's left. Recover what's left. Pull the pieces together. Go back to your roots Strengthen what remains and is about to die. So command one, wake up. Command two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Then he says, remember what you have received and heard. Command number three. 
Remember that just a few years ago, 20 to 30 years, many of these people were likely a part of this church when it was alive. Remember that. Remember the teachings of the apostles of which you were found upon. Remember what it was like to be spiritually alive, to have the Holy Spirit fueling your church. Remember what that was like. Remember what it was like before tolerance of sin killed the church. So wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, and then keep it. Keep it. Keep the teachings that you know. It's like one of my favorite slogans. Nike, just do it. Just do it. It's that easy. You know what to do. You've remembered, now do it. Keep the command. And finally, command number five, repent. Repent of your sin. And if you don't, I'm coming like a thief in the night and I will destroy you. So the message to the dead church is clear. It's a simple message. It's wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you don't, I'm coming again in judgment. Now this isn't just the message to the church in Sardis. This is the message to anyone who is dead. Who's dead? Anyone that's not alive through Christ. This is the message to everyone who doesn't confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The message is for you. The message is wake up. Wake up. Wake up. You're a sinner. You're sick with sin. You cannot fix it. And if you don't, there's one thing that's sure. Jesus is coming again. And if you are not confessing him and relying upon him for when that time comes, he will be to you as a thief in judgment. It's not somewhere you want to be. So if nothing else in this message gets through to you here, if you do not confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's this, wake up. Wake up and repent. That's the message to the mostly dead church in Sardis. Then there's the application of the message to those who are not dead in Sardis, to the remnant of believers in Sardis. The application to them is strengthen what remains, recover what's left, pick up the pieces. Remember the truths that you were taught. Restore the church to its vibrant roots. And if you don't, again, he is going to come in judgment against those people in the church. Set the church apart. The church is to be pure and holy. So those are the commands to the dead church. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, keep it, and repent. So finally, my last point, which is in verse 5, is the promise to the dead church. This is the good news. This is the promise. He says in verse 5, To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels to the one who conquers. Or some verses say overcome, to the one who overcomes. 
Now, lots of times we think about the overcomer or the conqueror as the person that receives glory for what they've overcome or conquered. So we've just had a five-step command process, and now the one who follows that is seen as a conqueror. So does does that mean that the overcomer or conqueror is who gets the glory and praise? Of course not. John uses similar language in 1 John 5, 5, where he says, Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one that believes in Jesus as the Son of God. He uses this word to say that you're only an overcomer on your stance before Jesus, on your stance with him based on belief in him, on what he's done for you. That is the only premise that we're an overcomer. And to those overcomers or conquerors, this is the promise, that you will be clothed in white garments. And we know that it's not of our own. Isaiah says, filthy rags are what I bring. Everything I do is nothing but filthy rags. But we see later on in Revelation how our our garments are made white by the cleansing blood of Jesus. This being clothed in white is a referencing of Revelation chapter 19. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb where the bride, the church, has made herself ready. She's clothed in garments, in fine linens that are bright and pure. This reference of a conqueror being clothed in white, that's referencing eternity with Christ. What else is there? He says he'll confess your name before my Father and before his angels for the one who conquers. So I skipped over one little phrase. I'm not going to totally dig into this, but it is a phrase of security and surety that has been very comforting to me, and I trust it is to you. He says to the overcomer, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I've heard this phrase misused many times, that if there's a group that's name will never be blotted out of the book of life, then there must be an alternative group of people whose names will be blotted out of the book of life. I don't have time to go into that deeply here. All I would say to you here is don't add a curse that's not there. This is such a verse of security and surety in your eternal stance that if you put your hope and trust in Christ, you don't have to live in fear about where you will stand. He says you will never have your name blotted out of the book of life. What an encouragement to the Christian. So then John closes in his typical fashion. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message to the church in Sardis is clear. It's this. It says, I, Christ, who possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit, I'm the one who has godly messengers. I sustain godly ministers and leaders. You, Sardis, are spiritually dead. Sin kills. So wake up. Repent. Spend eternity with me. That's it. That is the message to the church in Sardis. So what's the message to the church that isn't dead? What's the message to Rock Valley Bible Church? What do we have to gain from the message to the church in Sardis? Well, I would hope you would say the last 30 minutes that there's much that we can learn from the church in Sardis. 
But in case you haven't gotten it, these similar five commands can be tweaked to talk about a church that wants to maintain spiritual vitality, a church that's looking to maintain spiritual life, a church that's looking to avoid what happened to Sardis, to not be a spiritually dead church. So command one to the dead church was wake up. But fitting to what Steve read this morning, the command to the church that isn't dead would be stay awake. Stay awake. Keep watch. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. How do you stay awake? We hold true to the words of God. Don't water down the message of the gospel. It doesn't need our fixing. Hold true to what the message of the gospel is. Preach the glories of eternal life. Preach the curses of sin and what happens with sin without light, without Christ. That there are those that will suffer forever. Stay awake. Continue to hold true to that message. So command one to Rock Valley Bible Church is stay awake. Command two, rather than strengthen, but keep strong. Keep strong with a daily dose of the Lord. Remain steadfast on him. Realize that it's only through our dependence on him that we will maintain our spiritual life and vitality. Stay awake. Keep strong. Don't forget. Don't forget where we came from. Don't forget what it was like to experience the relief that comes from the peace that comes from acknowledging Christ as your Savior. Don't forget that. Remembering that helps us to stay in Him, to remain rooted upon Him. Don't forget. So stay awake. Keep strong. Don't forget. And then keep it. It sounds so simple. Just keep it. But it's hard. Don't forget. Keep it. And then finally, where we as a church are sure to fall short, repent. That's the message to Rock Valley Bible Church. Stay awake. Keep strong. Don't forget. Keep it. And finally, when we fall short, repent. And by the grace of God, we will maintain our spiritual life and vitality as a church. This is the message to Rock Valley Bible Church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your messages to the church and how even though they were written 2,000 years ago, that these are messages that have eternal truths that are applicable to your church today. We thank you for your care for your church. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sustain us as a church. We acknowledge that it's only through you that we maintain our spiritual life and vitality. Lord, help us to be a church that's continually dependent on you. Lord, by your grace, would we stay awake? Lord, would we remain strong? Would we not forget, Lord? Would we keep your truths, Lord? And then help us to repent every day where we fall short. Lord, we pray that you would... Bless our time after the service. Help us to build relationships. Help us to glorify and honor you in all that we say and do. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.